Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hello everyone, it's time for another Plundergrounds. I'm Ray Otis, recording from inside my car with my morning cup of coffee. I realize that the sound on my podcast lately is probably a little tinny. When I was home recuperating from elbow surgery, I could work in my closet, which is nice and quiet and has lots of baffles for sound in the form of hanging clothes. But uh, these days I'm recording from inside my uh, 1997 Honda CRV with over 200,000 miles on it. So I'm literally talking inside of a tin can. I keep thinking one of these days I'll trade it in for a newer car, but I just can't make myself do it. I want to see how many miles I can get on this thing. I have a feeling that 10 years from now I'm going to wake up and this thing's going to have 400,000 miles on it and I'll still be hanging on to it. <laughs> I, have a, I have an unhealthy sentimental attachment to this car for some reason. But uh, hopefully the sound is still clear. We've got a good call in today from Greg Gelder following up on my comment about creative diversions, and so I'm just going to start with that. Hey, Ray, it's Greg Gelder again. Uh, I'm interested in this thoughts you have about the, the creative diversions because in an attempt to do that Seinfeld chain, uh, I sort of dropped the ball on it, but my brain got working on another thing. I'm writing a, a, a whole different game with a real zany bent to it. But I'm curious on how you personally identify like the really good ideas that your brain is popping up with while you're working on other things and how you know which ones aren't worth pursuing or drilling down on. Uh, really enjoying the podcast and I look forward to your thoughts. Thanks. Greg, I wish I had some magical advice for you here. But the truth is, I don't know which ideas are the best ones or rather it's not, there's no science to this. It's more of an art, right? Uh, lots of inspiration points come to you and you work with them for a while. You know, it's like a toy. Sometimes you open up a toy at Christmas and it's exciting and it's amazing and it's the best toy you ever got. And a half hour later, later it's lying under the tree forgotten uh, while you play with the boxes, right? Uh, and other times, you know, that toy that, seemed like a dumb, you know, like, who got me this? Must be my aunt. This is boring. Uh, later on, turns out to be an amazing thing, like maybe a set of encyclopedias. No kid is excited about opening ex and a set of encyclopedias. Well, maybe I would have been. I was kind of nerdy. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that pays off in the long term. So it's kind of hard to tell sometimes which ideas are going to pan out. My comment about creative diversions came from a conversation on MeWe, where Greg Gorgon Milk was talking about uh, world building as, well, he called it masturbatory, um, potentially. Like, uh, you know, sometimes you are in the middle of, of building a campaign setting or just playing around with a world idea and you think, where's this going? Who's going to play this with me? Am I ever going to finish this? Uh, you know, and all those thoughts come into your head and they're probably all legit thoughts. It, it could be that no one will ever play it with you. It could be that you will not finish it. I made the comment at the time that, well, at least you're writing. So you're probably getting better at writing and you're designing. So you're probably getting better at designing. So who the hell cares whether it's ever productive, but because it, it is productive in the sense that you're, you're, uh, exercising your creative muscles. So that's good. 
But as far as choosing an idea that's going to essentially win the horse race, you know, an idea that you can see through to the finish, that's a little tougher. And I think the only way to do it really is to keep pushing at that idea and, and folding it and squeezing it and, you know, doing, uh, manipulating it in every way you can think of, um, writing things, drawing things, pulling in more inspirations and see if it, if it gathers energy or loses energy. And that's often, you know, I feel like there's a tipping point for me. Once I get four or five, um, you know, I'll usually start with a kernel of two or three creative ideas that kind of relate to each other or in the same vein. And then if they seem to attract other ideas, uh, I, I hear echoes of them and other things that I love. And those, uh, those inspiration points come in too. It, it's like a snowball that keeps gathering, you know, uh, gets larger and larger circumference. Uh, and that's when I know the idea has got legs and that it's going to, uh, get, get to the finish line. Well, I feel like I've gone through about 18 metaphors in the last five minutes here. So, <laughs> I apologize uh, for all my figurative language. Uh, so here's here's what I was working on at the time, and why am I why am I uh, indulging in a creative diversion? Well, it's because what I should be doing is prepping my games for Gary Khan. I have I have some deadlines. Today was supposed to be uh, my hard lock day for Plundergrounds issue seven, and I still have a couple pages of writing to do on that, so I'm going to have to work hard to get that deadline in. Um, I should have had it done a week ago. There's no reason I couldn't have had it done a week ago. Uh, I'm still putting together handouts and maps and things like that for, for my two, three-hour sessions at GaryCon. Truth is, I could run them right now, but I like to keep going back to the idea to make it you know, a better experience for the players to make sure I have the right things on the table, um, the right kinds of, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm running Goblin Town and, uh, I have before printed out the map as, you know, like, uh, uh I don't know, at, you know, 20 inch, 18 by 24 kind of thing uh, at a print shop. And it's kind of fun because you can figure out where people are in the town, uh, people, goblins, where goblins are in the town. And, but this time I decided for some reason that I'd re reinvent the wheel and I ordered these folding game boards off of Amazon that are blank uh, and they're 18 by 18 inches. They uh, folded down into a 9 by 9 square and I thought I'd redraw the town on that. Why Why did I choose to make things harder for myself? I don't know. I just thought it would be cooler and more portable. The, uh, the other thing is that the miniatures... I've got some goblin miniatures, but there are, many of them are kind of silly looking, uh, you know, Pathfinder goblin, plastic goblin miniatures. And, uh, so I don't know if I want to use those, even though those are the most colorful. Uh, I sometimes use bananagram tiles as miniatures because it, they have a letter on them. So it's really easy. I have a, a, I've pulled out a set of just one run of A to Z. So I'll often hand them to characters or to players in sessions and then have them name their character starting with the letter on the tile. And that way, it's you've got a very specific miniature for each uh, player character. I know exactly which one is which. Uh, it's good for marching order. It's good for you know just different things. I'll turn them over if they're incapacitated or something like that. Just lots of handy things you can do with Bananagrams. But it's kind of a boring miniature, right? Uh, so in between, I've got a set of wooden pawns that I often carry in my dice bag that are each a different color that you know, have a bit more of a humanoid shape to them. They're just a stand up like a round ball head with a, uh, you know, kind of a elongated, uh, cape like, 
I don't know, a spindle underneath them, right? A cone, that's the word I'm looking for. So it's just a basic pawn. But uh, somehow that is a bit more imaginative than a bananagram tile and a bit more abstract than a miniature. And, and I'm wrestling with myself over which one, which of those things I'm going to use at the table. Oh my gosh. Sometimes I just, yeah, just make your life so hard with this. It's GM jitters, I guess. But in the midst of all this, when I should be getting ready for Gen Con and uh, wrapping up personal projects, uh, you know, at home and things like that, uh, well, I've got those deadlines looming over me. What do I choose to do instead? Well, I start diving into all the literature around Dark Sun and dreaming about uh, building my own little campaign world. And it's a world that I've thought about before. Uh, it brings in a lot of different influences. Dark Sun is one. Uh, Barsoom is another. I used to, I ran a uh, by email letter game. I call it a letter game because people weren't emailing uh, each other. They were emailing me and then I was uh, emailing them back and uh, making connections between them and uh, putting out a, a digest kind of uh, uh Basically, I was hiding some player information so that they had secrets from each other, uh, and we played in a Barsoom-like setting. In fact, we called it Barsoom, but with a, a U and an umlaut over it instead of the double O, and uh, I've still got that on a blog somewhere. It was a really fascinating little game that we played for a while, and it had about 11 players in it. Um, but uh, So Barsoom is another one. Uh, Dune is in there as well, and then... I have this passion for uh, early Bronze Age, late Stone Age history, and I really wanted to work, you know, I really wanted to base it there. That might be the core of the whole thing, actually. Uh, so I'm thinking of a world that's kind of in that uh, early Sumerian vein. Uh, you know, I love the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I think about that as if that was the modern day, then behind that, you've got all these. Uh, older cultures that have left behind remnants. Stone, Stonehenge is a, a good example, although Stonehenge is kind of concurrent with uh, Sumerian uh, uh, history, I believe. I think Stonehenge is around 2500 BC, and I think that's around when the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh was written. But uh, uh, I think about things like um, there was a place between Britain and the continent uh, called Doggerland, that sunk around two, around 7,000 BC um, and may have been, it could have been one of the inspirations for Atlantis. Um, so you can look that up. That's kind of cool. Just uh, Google the phrase Britain's Atlantis and you'll find it. Um, the Hypogeum of Halsaflini in Malta is a really cool ancient Neolithic temple. Um, I don't remember the age on that one. Uh, there are the lizard man statues of the Ubaidan culture, U-B-A-I-D-A-N. I don't know if I said that right. Um, from around 5,500 BC, so pre-Sumerian, but from that from the same uh, Mesopotamian area. Uh, there's Gobekli Tepe, which I mentioned in another podcast, uh, which was from around 10,000 BC. So all these Neolithic uh, mega stone structures that are of a mysterious purpose, uh, you know, they, that's the quote unquote recent past to the early bronze age, right? So some of these cultures might be uh, limping along, 
still around. Um, you know, those sites might be still in use. Others might have been shut down and, and had, uh, there's all kinds of mystery there that you can write into. That's all I'm saying. I'd pick up the articles of those things and then kind of explain them to myself um, and then decide how much of that gets shown in the world. But it, it has a neat, rich back history. So I don't know how Barsoom and Dune and, and Dark Sun fit into that, but somehow they do. Um, part of it is, like with Dark Sun, it's the brittle weapons thing. You know, very uh, not not a lot of metal or good usable metal. So, uh, And I do want this to be a fantasy world, not Earth with some influences. So, you know, bone weapons and, and, and obsidian and things like that, um, stone. Uh, Barsoom comes into play just from the kind of... I, I like that kind of... Uh, canals and like a world uh bereft of water like it used to be a lush world and now it's turned into a desert in most places so a lot of the water is subterranean and um people are gathered in city states uh city states is a big part of this too i guess uh just the idea of well it's convenient right for for a setting to have your civilizations gathered into points of light and then everything in between be the wilderness um yeah. So, uh, and Dune, what do I like about Dune? Well, I suppose the association there is the desert planet, but that's not really where I'm coming from. I love the, uh, being Jesuit. That whole idea is super cool. And I like this idea of, um, I don't know how I'd fit this in, but the machine jihad from Dune where they basically decided that thinking machines were evil. Uh, and so they turned to the power of people and developed, you know, mintats, uh, so people who are human calculators and the Bean Jesuit who developed, uh, their, and the voice for one thing, like, you know, they, they can control their voice so well that they can hit just the right pitches to control people. Um, so I, I would like some of that human potential to creep into the game. And I guess the common thread here may be, maybe throwing away, um, some of the armor and weapon, porn that comes into most uh, fantasy stuff and replacing it with more of a human scaled thing. Um, well, I said that really ar- in a really articulate way. So <laughs> a human scaled thing. Uh, <laughs> I suppose there's another relationship here, which I love wuxia films and in wuxia films, you know, a lot of times the combatants have been denied um, what you'd think of as martial weapons, like uh, really uh, later on, they, that's not as true, but um, a lot of the martial arts weapons were derived from peasant weapons. Uh, so from people who were oppressed and they weren't allowed to carry swords and such, so they um, used staves and uh, you know threshing rakes and things like that and uh, made them into weapons or made weapons that are, are inspired by those things. So yeah, that I mean, you could see what a rabbit hole I was down, and I'm still down, and all that's just floating around in my head, and it's clouding out this uh, thing that I got to do, which is finish revising Goblin Town. Uh, I hoped to have that in a printable zine form by the con. I don't think that's going to happen. I think I'm just going to have a really good set of notes. Um, it's it's kind of already almost done in a zine form. I'm just not happy with some little bits of it. So not enough to hand it out to people. In other words, that's what I was hoping to do was to print the zines out and hand them out at the table. Um, and uh, ditto for for issue seven of Plundergrounds. I was hoping to have that in a finished form that I can hand out at the table. Um, neither of those things is probably going to happen. I'm giving myself a pass on those. But had I not spent the time on that other idea, I would have had them done. Now, is that a bad thing? 
you can decide, I don't know. Creative diversions are, sometimes you just have to follow your muse, right? You, whatever inspires you. Uh, and it's not like, you know, my children are going hungry or anybody at the con is going to have a terrible experience because I didn't do the thing that I, you know, that I originally set out to do. So I'm not, uh, this diversion isn't something that's harmful. It's, it's just, um, well, it's just, it, you know, the road less, it's two roads diverged in woods, right? As Robert Frost would say, um, I don't know if I took the road less traveled. I think I took a road more traveled, <laughs> the one that the one that is not focused on uh, getting to where you're supposed to go, but the one that meanders and you don't know where it goes, but you're going to follow it anyway because uh, you can hear the call of it very strongly in your head. I don't know what else to say about creative diversions. They're wonderful, I guess. Uh, don't be afraid of them. Uh, don't always expect them to produce something. I think a lot of times we measure everything we get into by will this end in a product, you know, um, something that I can hold up and say it's done. You know, that's not the point of that, is it? Being creative is its own reward. I love I love diving into just that creative space. And actually, now that I've said that, I've got another call in that I want to play here uh, and talk about. Hi, Ray. Seemingly, I'm doing some soul searching regarding my art, uh, in particular, this question of getting back to painting. And um, I think I may have some real underlying guilt uh, associated with the whole business. Do you think, uh, do you have this, this feeling that it's somehow self-indulgent, the people around you are out earning money, doing what society perceives as proper work, um, and, uh, you know, goofing around, doing paintings. I don't know, man. I, I actually think that I've got a bit of a problem with this, and um, I just wonder if you've got any suggestions, mate, or, you know, some Freudian stuff, or I don't know. Anyway, hope it finds you well. That's an interesting thought, Spike Pitt. I guilt. Yeah, I, I do. I I my first reaction is to say that I don't, but then I got to thinking about it, and yeah, there are some feelings of guilt associated with art, and let's let's talk about why. I think I might have less than you, um, and I and I'm, I want to psycho psychoanalyze you, but um, art can be a very selfish thing, right? And when I was in college studying art, I was unattached. I didn't have a, I mean, I had girlfriends, but I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have someone that, uh, that I ended up marrying or anything like that. And I think you did. I think you had, um, uh, someone who you, if I recall, um, your wife is someone you met before school. And so you, um, were, attached to her, whether that was, whether you were married or not during that time. And so when you spent time on art, you were taking time away from that relationship. And I imagine that probably put a lot of uh, feelings of guilt or associated th those feelings with your art in a way that's, uh, that could be harmful to the art or harmful to your psyche or just problematic in general. Not to blame, not blaming your, your significant other for that, by the way. Um, I wouldn't even raise that with her because she might feel somehow responsible for that. But I, I wonder if that's not the origin point for a few of your guilty feelings. Having said that, I have some of those too. Um, and it's not so much about taking time away 
from, I guess it is, isn't it? Like we have all the, look, gamers do this a lot. Anyway, we are diving down into like these silly quote unquote, silly, uh, role-playing game texts and fantasy worlds. And, um, you know, if our spouses aren't in it with us, or our kids aren't in it with us, then somehow it's, it's a very selfish thing. It's time we take for ourselves and that's okay. Uh, being selfish is important at times. Uh, if, at least in a, oh, uh, keeping a whole self, not in terms of, of actually being, um, awful selfish, uh, like, like withholding things from others that they need or whatever. But yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about some other things that give rise to guilty feelings with art. Uh, when you are working on something, you tend to do it in secret. At least I do. I don't talk to my wife a lot about the things I'm working on creatively because in the, early stages, they're hard to express. And if I express them, um, then I lose them somehow. This has been discussed before, but, you know, creative energy is something you have to guard. If you're working on a project, you don't want to talk about it too early or people start throwing in ideas that don't make sense to you or, you know, start skewing the, the project you're working on or somehow in talking about it, you lose the energy that you were going to use to, to push it further. So, it is something you do a little bit in secret and everything you do in secret leads to feelings of guilt, I think. <laughs> so there's that. Um, it, it is time intensive. Uh, it is distracting. So when one of the things I miss most about working on about painting and things regularly, and I guess I get it through writing now, um, and sometimes drawing were these marathon sessions. I used to work in six to seven hour sessions, uh, and wouldn't even necessarily have music on or anything. Uh, and I like to be alone while I was working because I could just disappear into the art. You know, it was, it, I almost didn't feel like there was anything between me and the page and my mind was on the page. It wasn't, you know, two feet back from the page behind the end of my arm. It was literally in the page and I just, um, whatever I needed, my fingers, tools, whatever was handy, whatever I could grab uh, within reach, whatever colors I had around, that was what I used to kind of push that, you know, to push the page further. Uh, and because I, the minute I stopped and kind of tried to think things through, I, I lost it, you know, <laughs> I had to get in the zone and really, and so that means I was in my own little world. And let's just use that phrase. I think that's what I'm trying to get to. Uh, being in your own little world. That can feel very selfish and it can feel very, very isolating. And it can feel like uh, you're doing something wrong uh, because other people are trying to connect to you and you're shutting them off. So, yeah, I think I think feelings of guilty are, uh, a guilt are something you have to work through. I would encourage you to... Um, this is going to sound funny. I'd encourage you to not feel guilty when you're working on art. I, I think part of that is do this, do the other stuff first, right? Um, spend some time with your wife, spend some time with your kids, uh, put in a, uh, some hours on a house project, earn your, earn your artistic hours so that when you, um, set aside time and say, Hey, I'm going to go paint for a while. Um, you can be alone and not feel guilty about it. Uh, you can you can feel like you are owed that time or have earned that time, and that's important. I think um, the problem with that is now when you get to that, you're gonna have a little bit of blank page syndrome because you you almost have put pressure on that situation, right? Uh, art, it's awful, isn't it? Um, 
but you do that work to get there and then you set aside time and you go there at this at the specified time and all of a sudden you don't feel like creating <laughs> uh, but I you know what that's an illusion too if you uh, say F that and uh, grab your pen or your paintbrush or your carving tools or whatever and just get started most of the time you work through that you disappear into the project and you, you get something cool um, other times you work for a couple hours and look at the thing you've made and it's a horrible misshapen child and you um, laugh at yourself and and walk away uh, but that's just that's just the nature of the beast man so I don't know if I have any. I don't know if I shared anything there that was helpful. I don't want to set myself up as a guru of this stuff. I have personal experiences to share, um, and I have some thoughts from those, and I think a lot about it. But I'm no expert, and I'm certainly no psychologist. Uh, but yeah, I think that's where those feelings of guilt come from. So if you're soul searching and uh, any of that resonates with you, tell me about it. That's cool. By the way, happy birthday, man! I'm, I wish I'd known that beforehand, and it's just like your hundredth episode. I seriously meant to record something for that and then next thing I know you've got the 100th episode out you're so fast at this stuff but I just want you to know that discovering your podcast back in what was it September of last year um, I feel like so much joy has come into my life from listening to you I, I really enjoy just hearing your voice people talk about your accent and that's yeah that is cool especially for us americans we love accents but it's not just the accent you have a lot of warmth in your voice and you have a lot of genuineness um you're just a real guy and everyone loves listening to a, a person who's just being real um you've led us into your family life uh you've led us into your interior thoughts your your strengths and your weaknesses and I just, I mean, it's amazing. I really enjoy listening to you. So don't ever give up podcasting. And um, I hope one of these days soon to see some art that you've made uh, come out. So, right, get on that. <laughs> well, I suspect this podcast is already a half hour. And I know that if I listen back to it, I'm going to hear all my ums and lip smacking and all my pet phrases like, you know, and there you go. And, and I won't, I won't have the courage to put it out. So I'm not even going to listen back to it. I'm just going to drop it. Uh, I hope you get something out of it. Share your experiences with me. I want to hear about your creative diversions. I want to hear about your artistic guilt. Those are two great topics. Thank you for the call-ins that got me started on those. I'm Ray Otis signing off. The opening theme song is by Logan Howard of the excellent Swordbreaker zine and podcast. Links to all my various things can be found at www.rayotus.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And until next time, look out for those rust monsters. <laughs> I was too lazy to go find my sound effect. <laughs>